Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. So this shift from just in case to just in time is basically the idea that whereas in the past, the emphasis was you're going to take a whole bunch of time studying things at the beginning of your career, essentially in case you need it, which is problematic today for a number of reasons. It's always been problematic because all the data shows that we tend not to remember <laughs> much of it anyway. Um, and it's even more problematic because of the rate of change in the professional world. Um, Larry Summers, the, the former dean of Harvard, is on record saying that everything you learn is going to be obsolete in the next 10 years. So the idea of spending years studying things just in case when A, it won't be relevant, and B, you're not even going to remember it by the time you need it, that doesn't make sense. And so what we're seeing is a transition of a lot less just-in-case education, and that's specifically in those contexts of foundational and last mile, and a lot more, actually, education over a lifetime in that continuing education bucket where it's you know not you know taking a year or two years or four years out of life to learn, but rather, you know, it could be weeks or it could be months, and it's often concurrent with the rest of what's happening in life as you level up in the specific ways that you need to be leveling up. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Danny, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Srini, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So you and I actually go way back because you were actually in the first uh, several hundred people that I interviewed back when we were called Blogcast FM. And somebody on your team wrote in to tell me about your new book, Leverage Learning, which is all about uh, transforming education, something that I'm deeply passionate about and deeply interested in. Uh, but before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking, what did your parents do for a living and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? That's an interesting question. So my dad is a technical writer. Um, so if you've ever um, you know, bought a, a piece of technology, a piece of software, and there was a user manual that came with it, my dad might have written that. Um, my mom um, was a stay-at-home mom until we were about teenagers. When my parents split up, she um, worked in various uh, like office coordination management type roles. Um, in terms of how that impacted me, I don't know. I, I don't know that it did. I, I don't know that I have a good answer to that one. <laughs> hmm. So, I mean, how in the world did you arrive at this idea then of exploring education? Like, what has led you to this point? Um, and what, if any, were sort of significant moments that you think shaped how you've ended up here? Um, so, there, there are two, I mean, there are many moments in my life. I've always been interested in education in, in different ways, but there, there are two very important. Um, and very contrasting moments. 
um, which my parents did play into. So <laughs> this does loop back, I guess. Um, so the first moment was when I was 15 years old. Um, and, and just so you have a picture of me as a kid, I was like, you know, the nerdiest goody little two shoes kid that like was every teacher's pet. That was me as like a child and, um, you know, straight A's and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I get into the ninth grade and it's like a switch flipped in my head. And I was just like sitting in class feeling bored out of my mind. I'm like, I can't take this anymore. And so I would cut a class or two and one or two became five or 10 or 15. And I would come back periodically. And it's like, I've been gone for two weeks and they're still talking about that same boring thing that they were last time I was here. And so I would cut even more classes and like, I'm not a guy who does anything halfway. And so in that first, I don't remember if it was like a semester or a trimester or what, but I missed 152 classes and, you know, the number just went up from there. And that went on for about a year and a half. And when I was 15, about halfway through the 10th grade, I just took a look in the mirror and I said, okay, this is ridiculous. Like, what am I going to do? Spend, you know, several more years cutting classes and going to the gym and watching MTV because, you know, what do you do when you're 15? That doesn't make sense. I'm going to, I'm going to make this official. I'm just going to quit and I'm going to start my own business. And of course, my parents had um, opinions about that. My dad, who is temperament-wise about as far from um, being an entrepreneur as you can be, did not like that idea at all. He was you know, worried that I was throwing my life away. And, and that was the prevailing narrative around me, right? Danny, you are throwing your life away. Not just that it's a bad decision, but it's like this bad decision with irreversible repercussions for the rest of my life. And that was... That didn't ring true to me. That was like a little like weird because I always thought in the back of my mind, but like, I think this is the right move. But if it turns out to be the wrong move, I can always go back to school. Like this is not irreversible. And that was my mom's perspective as well. She did not have a great experience in high school. And her perspective was as long as I'm doing something productive with my time, you know, it's okay. Worst comes to worst, I can undo it. So I dropped out of school, started my first business despite this prevailing narrative around me that like, Danny, this is not just the worst decision you'll ever make, but you're throwing your life away. And it turned out to be a great, uh, a great decision. I, I had opportunities I never otherwise would have had. I had experiences that I wouldn't have been able to experience. I learned a ton. So great decision for me in that situation. Mm-hmm. So I had this, you know, entrepreneurial career and I, I you know, as, as you do as a teenager, right? It's, it's not like I built anything huge, but um, you know, experimented and got involved with different businesses. And fast forward 10 years, I had built, um, this was my first attempt at like a big startup and we raised money and all that kind of stuff. And in September of 2008, as the business was floundering because I was a young and inexperienced CEO who didn't know what he was doing, um, and what in hindsight was also the most like complicated industry on the face of the earth because that's what education is. Um, that's when the markets crashed. It all just gave the business a sucker punch and it all fell apart. Um, and I walked away from that with about a quarter of a million dollars in debt because I didn't want my investors, many of whom were friends and family, to just be stuck with the bill. So I took it on personally. And in that very low point in my life, I'm thinking, well, maybe I need some structure. Maybe I need a safety net. Maybe I need all those things that a traditional path is supposed to do. And so I decided maybe I'll go back to school and I'll get my MBA. And the prevailing narrative around me then was, 
Danny, this is great. You're finally getting your life on track. You're going to be on the right path and have the letters and the you know significant like indication after your name and all that kind of stuff. My dad, who's a very traditional thinker in that way, was like, you know, yes, this is a great idea. And so I, I researched, I got accepted to one of the top business schools in Canada, because I live in Canada. And I spent a year and change getting that degree and lots and lots of money. And that turned out to have been a terrible decision. Um, If I had to make a list of the top 10 worst investments of time and money in my life, this would be high on that list. And it's irreversible, right? I can't get that time or that money back. And, you know, that's okay. We learn from all our experiences and I've had setbacks and bounce back from them. And I run a successful business and I'm very happy today. Like, it's all good. But the contrast between these two experiences was really interesting to me, right? Not pursuing a certain educational path was heralded by the world around me as like the worst thing I could ever do with irreversible consequences, neither of which turned out to be true. Whereas this very traditional thing that I then chose to do, everyone thought was a great idea, but it turned out A, not to be great, and B, to have irreversible consequences. And I was like... Something there doesn't add up. The way we think about education as a society, just something's messed up about that. And that led me to close to a decade of interest and passive research, meaning reading articles and reading books and just kind of, you know, getting involved in things because I was interested. And then about a year of very intensive research when I was like, there's something here. And that year of research turned into my latest book, Leverage Learning, which is about all the ways in which education needs to be and is being disrupted. Wow. Okay. So, so many questions come from just that alone. Uh, you know, I I think the thing that really has struck me is you, you've used this idea of irreversible, right. To describe the high school experience as well as to describe the MBA experience. And I I can relate because I've had the virtually the same experience with an MBA. And I've always told people, you know, getting an MBA teaches you nothing about running a business. It teaches you how to be an employee in somebody else's. Um, But one thing I wonder is why do people believe that things that are reversible are irreversible and how do they overcome that? Um, It's a really interesting question. Um, And, you know, there are two kinds of questions that you can ask me. There are the questions where it's like, I know the answer. Mm -hmm. And there are the questions where I can posit an answer. So this is the second type. (laughs) I've been known to do that to people. Uh, And and that's totally fine. I'm happy to give an answer. But like, this is, you know, when I talk about some things, I absolutely know what I'm talking about. This is my best guess. Um, But I think that when you look at evolutionary history, right, we evolved in societies of 50, 100, 150 people, Dunbar's number, the number of people that you can, you know, meaningfully remember. And in that context, what other people think of you is hugely, hugely important because if people don't like you and don't cooperate with you, like that's, you know, life is over. You're, you're done for um, in terms of, you know, survive and reproduce, both of which are the things that our bodies and brains evolved to be able to do. So wanting people to like us while wanting people to approve of the decisions we make is deeply, deeply wired into our psychology and taking a path that is not the path that everyone takes is challenging on two levels. It's challenging because we have the expectation that, you know, if we do what everyone else is doing, then we're likely to be okay because everyone else is okay. And it's scary because other people tend not to like it. 
right? There's the um, you know the the bucket of crabs analogy, right? You know, you've got a, a bunch of crabs in a bucket. Every time one of them tries to climb out, all the others grab that crab and pull it down. And this analogy is used in a um, almost with a malicious implication. It's like, look, you know, you want to break free and have a successful life, and no, everyone's trying to pull you down. No, they're trying to protect you. Right? They love you and they care about you and they want to protect you from doing stupid things that could get you in trouble, that could get you killed. And for most of human history, they would have been right because humanity evolved. And for most of human history, it was a world that didn't give second chances. Right? If you're a hunter-gatherer on the savanna and you don't get away from that saber-toothed tiger, you don't get a second chance. You're done. If you're living in you know, medieval Europe and you run afoul of some lord and they don't like you, you're pretty much done. If you're working a couple hundred years ago, not even that far back, in a factory and you get a little cut and you get infected, then you're done. Like There were no second chances. But things have changed a lot. and In the last several decades especially, we've shifted into a world that is abundant with second chances and our psychology hasn't caught up. So that's that's the why. In terms of how to overcome it, other than kind of just recognizing that it, it's a lot like, you know, not eating sweets. We evolved to want to eat sweets, but we know better. So mm. we need to have the willpower and discipline to sometimes do that. Yeah. So, you know, one other thing you brought up twice, you used the phrase prevailing narrative. And I think we kind of got a glimpse of, uh, you know, what impact evolution has on a prevailing narrative. You've given us a glimpse into what parents have in the impact that your parents have on a prevailing narrative. Uh, I wonder what you think is the impact of society, media, uh, and culture on prevailing narratives and, you know, how do we how do we change that if that's the case? Because I think so often what happens is a prevailing narrative is so deeply embedded in our lives it becomes like a, a you know water is to a fish. Uh, I think that's a good analogy um, because that is the experience. It's it's invisible and pervasive around us, and a fish can swim to a different part of the ocean. Um, so we have like both of those abilities. So there is the prevailing narrative like in society as a whole. And changing that narrative is very hard. Um, it's you know the the kind of stuff that people work for entire lives and engage a lot of people to try to make happen because it's important for it to happen. But there is kind of being aware. You know, a fish can. I don't know if a fish can actually do this, but a human who is swimming, their attention can be called to the water. They can become aware of the water rather than it being invisible so you can recognize that this is the narrative around you rather than just this is what is and then you can go against it if and when you want but we also have the the privilege of being able to choose the narrative you can switch off some of those informing sources if you want i mean i um for for my whole life i, I don't watch the news i never have watched the news i've always been of the opinion that a if it's really important you know, you're going to hear about it. It's not like, you know, Donald Trump was elected and I didn't find out for a year. It's like, obviously, the, the things that make global important headlines, you find out. Um, but if if it's not something that directly affects me and that I can do something about, then I don't see a purpose in, in clouding my judgment with it. So we can be very intentional about around not shaping the narrative as a whole that exists, but definitely shaping the narrative that you get exposed to. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
So let's actually get into this whole idea of leverage learning. Um, I think where I want to start is, is, you know, how we arrived where we're at with education, because you said that, you know, we all learn in very different ways. Education is impacted by age, geography and everything else you can imagine. We tend to forget that formal education was basically established as a buffer. So how, you know, obviously we know that the Industrial Revolution led to sort of students sitting in rows at desks being able to basically follow instructions. But how we arrived at this point and why is it taking so damn long for people to say, okay, you know what, this isn't working. Like it shouldn't take a college like Sweetbriar closing its doors to say, okay, wait a minute, we have a serious issue here. Um, I, I think, I think part of, well, a big part of how we got here um, and understanding how we got here is recognizing that a lot of things in our society have a, a very kludgy kind of provenance. Like they didn't um, get invented for the purpose they're serving now. They often got invented for other reasons, kind of got shoehorned into um, into other purposes. So, uh, And also I want to emphasize that um, while I have opinions about elementary and secondary education, um, in my professional work, I'm mostly focused on post-secondary education. So after people are out of high school, like college and, and the rest of life. Mm-hmm. Um, but colleges once upon a time in the very early days were um they were the keepers of knowledge it was a very um specialized very focused um kind of role in society and over time it became where people who um had an excess of time and money on their hands essentially could go to spend a bunch of years and the fact that they all did that it kind of became um a signal of the fact that they come from that class of society that has that extra money and that extra time. And that's not to say they didn't learn things that are interesting or build relationships that are valuable, but it's to say that the degree became a signal for a lot of things that the degree was not directly responsible for so much as um, the degree was, a, was, was like selecting in terms of the applicants who came into the process. So when you look at that history and you look at, you know, in the first half of the last century, having a degree from a, a recognized accredited college, it was a big deal. It opened a lot of doors. And that's, you know, for for reasons that that are good and legitimate. And so a lot of people legitimately said, well, wow, you know, I want to get me one of those. And the demand for those degrees increased rapidly. And, you know, there were things like the GI Bill that made it more possible and all that kind of stuff. But over time, more and more and more people got that degree. And two things happened. One is that just the the presence of higher education, the penetration of higher education into modern American and by extension, you know, the, the developed world society has gone has gone up dramatically. Um, to the point where now I think 40% of adult Americans have a college degree. And that's great if you think that it magically makes you a better and more capable person, except that all the research, all the data shows that it doesn't. It is a signal that you bring certain things to the table. But if it's just the signal, well, signals that are ubiquitous don't help you. right? If you're trying to choose between five restaurants and they all have 10 five-star reviews, then the, the reviews don't help you. right? It's only when only one of the restaurants has good reviews, okay, then we know that that's probably the better one. So if you're applying for a job and you're the only guy who has MBA after his name on a resume, you stand out. If all of the applicants have that, it doesn't really do much for you anymore. So that is one factor that has changed. The other is um, that whereas the selection criteria used to mean a lot more, um, 
A, that's just not the case because of the ubiquity of everyone going through it. But the actual impact of the degree is becoming less valuable and more negative. Because we live in a world where the pace of change is accelerating very quickly, right? We've all heard the the cliches about how, you know, the hottest jobs today didn't exist 15 years ago, and we're training people to solve problems that aren't problems yet, using tools that haven't been invented yet, et cetera, et cetera. We're preparing people ostensibly to do jobs that don't exist, solving problems that haven't emerged yet. And so how do you do that? Well, you need people who are good at figuring things out, thinking on their feet, being self-directed in a lot of ways. But college is essentially four more years of practicing doing what other people are telling you what to do. So the demands of that experience are are more and more in conflict with the demands of the real world. So here we are. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. 
Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So uh, you know, there are a couple of things that I wonder about. One is, is there a way out of this mess? Because the thing that I realized, you know, much like yourself, I took on a lot of student loan debt and, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I looked at it and said, wow, I can either spend the rest of my life paying off this debt or I can do something that's meaningful to me in my life and hopefully helps a lot more people than I would have helped if I had paid off the debt. Uh, and the the thing that I keep thinking is how long can you keep lending money out uh, and not getting it back before the roof caves in and there are systemic consequences. So is the educate is the education system just in a, a delusional reality? They're just in denial or are they waking up to this and, and looking at, at, you know, changing? Like, why is it not changing? I guess is the real question. Uh, that's such a big question. Um, so when you ask, is there a way out of this? Like, I guess the question I've got to come back with is for who? Because the answer is different for different populations. Mm. For people who have already gotten a degree and you know thought it was the golden ticket and just found out that it's not, um, which is the majority of degree holders, right? Recent grads age 22 to 29, almost half of them are underemployed working in a job that doesn't require a college degree. Um, for those people, that really sucks. And definitely, I think um, a lot of them are in jobs they don't like but might pay higher just because they have these obligations. Um, they're not in a good position. I think it's challenging. Um, there is interesting research starting to show that, you know, in the medium to long run, you're going to do better in life financially as well if you're not just focused on the financial returns. Um, put very, very simply, like this is an oversimplification, but um, fundamentally, people will pay you more money if you can do things very, very well. Now, when we try to do things that are very, very hard for us, it's because generally we're not great at it. So why would anyone pay you a lot of money to do something that you're not even very, very good at doing, right? So finding that zone of here is my genius, here's what I can do that nobody else can do that I really love is a long-term path to, to financial success. Not always, mm -hmm. but often. There's some really interesting research out of... Um, I want to say Harvard, um, about this just recently. Todd Rose um, published a book just recently called Dark yeah. Horse, which is very good. So for the people who are stuck with all that debt and saying, great, now what? I, I would say that's a path to consider. Um, for the institutions, and that's really the colleges and the financial backing, which is largely government-sourced, uh, which is why college debt is the only debt that you can't even free yourself of by declaring bankruptcy. Um, very clever on the part of the government. Um, I actually don't think the default numbers are as high as people think. Um, some of the data I've looked at recently um, and that I've heard reported is that while there's a lot of talk about high default rates, but the default rates are often um, already when most of the debt has been paid off and it's not a default, like the, the, there's a particular definition of default. It's like a payment hasn't been made for a certain number of months. Um, it's a function of people having fallen behind or forgot or whatever, but often they do end up paying off that debt. Um, because the government wants them to, and they're not going to give up the, <laughs> they're not going to give it up. Um, I, I do think the world is catching on the, the, 
you know, education consuming population is catching on. This just doesn't make sense. Right, college enrollment is down almost seven percent in the last five years, and I think that's continuing to happen. Fundamentally, when value is going down and price is going up, both of which are true of of higher education as a whole, that's what a bubble is, and bubbles pop. But not all bubbles pop the way you know we see a dramatic bubble in in the markets pop, where it's like boom, you know, stock prices drop eighty percent in one day. Sometimes it's that, right? It's like a, a pin that's taken to a balloon that all explodes. But sometimes it's more like a balloon that has a tear in it and the air just gets let out of it over the course of five or 10 or 15 years. Like, And I think that's what's happening with college already. So a lot of people are already saying, okay, this doesn't make sense. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go somewhere else. And there is a gap of, you know, but then where do they go? There isn't a good, you know, don't go to college, do this instead alternative that is mainstream. I mean, yes, there are coding boot camps. Most of the economy is not software developers. Um, And then in terms of, is there a way out of this for the educational institutions? I don't think so. I think there's so much inertia. um, There's so much infrastructure. Their hands are tied in so many different ways. I think really good educational alternatives will emerge. Um, But I mean, Clayton Christensen has said he expects that, you know, 50% of colleges will be bankrupt in the next five or 10 years. I don't know if I'm quite that pessimistic, but I'm not far behind. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's funny because I know this because my dad's a college professor and I, I remember having this conversation with Adam Grant. I've had this conversation with Cal Newport, uh, anybody who teaches in the system. And, and one of the things that's interesting is there's literally no incentive for them to change, especially if you're a tenured professor, uh, because the the life, you know, it's such a cushy sort of guarantee of a salary for the rest of your life, particularly in systems like the UC. Uh but let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit and get into sort of this whole idea of leverage learning. And where I want to start is with what you basically described as this shift from just-in-case to just-in-time learning. What does that mean and how does that apply to our lives? Sure. So um, as context, um, I think all post-secondary education essentially falls into one of three buckets. The first bucket is foundational adult education. That's um, all the basic things you need in order to function successfully in society. Um, And this is what colleges pretend they're doing when they say we train you for nothing, but we educate you for everything, except all the data shows that that's not true. But just because they're not delivering on that promise doesn't mean it's not an important promise to deliver on. So there is that foundational adult education. The second bucket is last mile. That's the bridge between whatever your foundation is and a career. And that can be as simple as an internship or a coding boot camp. It can be as elaborate as medical school. And then the third bucket is continuing education over a lifetime. So this shift from just in case to just in time is basically the idea that whereas in the past, the emphasis was you're going to take a whole bunch of time studying things at the beginning of your career, essentially in case you need it, which is problematic today for a number of reasons. It's always been problematic because all the data shows that we tend not to remember (laughs) much of it anyway. Um, And it's even more problematic because of the rate of change in the professional world. Um, Larry Summers, the the former dean of Harvard, is on record saying that everything you learn is going to be obsolete in the next 10 years. So the idea of spending years studying things just in case when A, it won't be relevant, and B, you're not even going to remember it by the time you need it, that doesn't make sense. And so what we're seeing is a transition of a lot less just-in-case education, and that's specifically in those contexts of foundational and last mile. 
and a lot more actually education over a lifetime in that continuing education bucket where it's you know not you know taking a year or two years or four years out of life to learn but rather you know it could be weeks or it could be months and it's often concurrent with the rest of what's happening in life as you level up in the specific ways that you need to be leveling up Mm-hmm. So speaking of leveling up, uh, one of the things that you talk about is encoding uh, in the book. And I know you quoted some of the research uh, from Anders Ericsson, who has been a guest here. Can you expand on that? And I think the, the way that I would like to do it is with a very practical example. So everybody who listens to this show, probably uh, myself included, reads dozens of books, if not hundreds, every year. Uh, how could we take the uh, concepts about uh, you know from this no- idea of encoding and apply them to something like reading a book? Um, and really applying that knowledge in our lives? Um, It's a great question. I would actually propose a bit of a reframe. Sure, Um, absolutely. Because, so I get asked um, sometimes, because, you know, I I write about and teach about education, that kind of stuff, like, how do I study? How do I learn? How do I develop my knowledge and expertise? And a lot of what I do kind of falls into two categories. Um, And I'm talking about non-specific like technical, you know, I need to learn how to, you know, manage this ad platform or something like that. I'm talking about more general um, knowledge and education. So there are books and podcasts and, um, you know, high-level online courses and that kind of stuff. And I kind of lump them all in that same bucket as a relatively low level of immersion in in an idea and that's not a criticism it's just recognizing that like a book is not meant to be a vehicle of transformation a book is great for expanding your horizon exposing you to ideas that you haven't been exposed to before um, adding knowledge onto existing expertise that you already have a book is not a vehicle for imparting competence most people don't read a book and then by the end of the book i'm now good at something that i wasn't good at before yeah so that's not a criticism of books. It's just recognizing what books are good for. I read lots of books. I listen to lots of podcasts, but I don't expect to become an expert by having read those books. Um, that's great when I'm trying to like you know learn about a topic for the first time. If I want to go deeper, if I want to develop an expertise, then it's about, well, what am I going to do with that knowledge? And so taking my notes from a book and you know, writing about it or combining it with other ideas or teaching about it. Um, often I'll organize um, little mastermind type events where I'll just reach out to, you know, a handful of people who are experts in a field that I want to learn. I'll organize a little get together for a day or two and say, you know, I'm getting it together because I just want to talk about this topic, right? And have conversations and dig into how is this going to work and how can I apply it here? And, and it's reciprocally valuable because you know, everyone's there helping each other. But it's an opportunity to work with the ideas in a lot more depth. So I, I'm not of the school of thought that you, know, you can read a book and get this much out of it. But if you read a book three times and take notes and, and you know, listen to a recording of you narrating it back while you sleep, you'll, you'll gather <laughs> this much more. I, I think there's a cap on how much you can get from just reading somebody else's ideas. I think it's really valuable, but that's good for exposing uh-huh. yourself to the ideas. And if you want to go deeper with them, you have to do it in a different way. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, people always ask me where I come up with all my ideas for things to write about. I'm like, I always write about the things I read because it helps me learn them uh, on a much deeper level. And it's, it's funny because even something like writing, I was like, you could read every book in the world about writing or how to write a book. But the only thing that's going to help you write a book is to sit down and write the damn book. Well, because there's all this contextual knowledge about uh, this is um, if you go to um, why is his name escaping me? The, the manager is not MBA's guy, um, Henry Mintzberg. 
Um, he teaches at McGill here in Montreal. Um, but he's very he's been very critical of MBA programs. And one of his criticisms, <laughs> even though he's a teacher in one, um, he doesn't teach uh, he doesn't teach at the MBA program anymore. He has like this alternative hmm. thing. It's it's a really interesting book. But he argues that basically MBA programs they teach the wrong stuff in the wrong way, which I agree with. But a big part of his criticism is that they also teach it to the wrong people. They teach it to people who are a couple years out of their undergrad. They've never managed anyone. And it's a little bit like you know trying to to describe an elephant to someone who can't see. Um, it, it's a very challenging thing because we, whenever we learn anything, right? With, when I listen to a podcast, when I read a book, I am scaffolding those ideas. Scaffolding is a, a fundamental concept of education, which is that anything new that we learn is basically tacked onto the scaffolding of what we already know. So I'm I'm relating these new ideas to things I already know, and. You, you can only learn so much about writing when you don't have any experiential knowledge of what writing is like. You just need that as a foundation to be able to, to connect those new ideas. Mm-hmm. Well, let's do this. I think I, I want to spend the rest of our time, and you talked about designing great courses, but I think that um, what will be more useful and I think will actually kind of answer our question about how to design great courses is this idea of the six <clears throat> layers of leverage learning, which you said content, what students need to succeed, delivery, user experience, accountability, and support. Before we get into those, I want to ask you about one thing that is probably relevant to these questions in these areas. Uh, you know, when you hear the work about you know of somebody like Cal Newport, who has said that you know one of the big challenges we're facing is the fact that our attention is constantly under assault uh, from the fact that we have all these distractions and and stuff, and yet you know one of the delivery mechanisms for uh, a new sort of way of learning is the internet. So how do you you know contend with those two uh, challenges? Like how do you coexist and make sure that people are effective with their learning despite those issues? Um, I have a slightly different perspective. Um, there's, you know, yes, we're bombarded with, you know, people, everyone wants our attention because our attention is valuable and monetizable and so forth. Um, and so we're bombarded by advertising and by interruptions. There is all that and developing the habits of turning off the, the distractions that are not useful is very important. I, I'm a big proponent of Cal's work in, in that area. Um, but I think there is an analog to that where people tend to say, you know, oh, look, you know, our attention spans have declined to nothing. There's that famous factoid that that gets bandied about all the time that, you know, research has shown, quote unquote, that our uh, our attention spans are now shorter than a goldfish. And first of all, it's total nonsense. Like if you actually chase down that trail of that research, it's, it has nothing to do with goldfish. It wasn't about our attention spans in general. It was like a very particular thing in a very particular context, all taken out of, out of that original place. Um, but I think there's also a misdiagnosis of the behavior people are seeing because, you know, yes, people stay on a web page for an average of like, you know, point whatever seconds before they bounce. But this is at the same time as, you know, we live in an era where people binge watch 12 hours of Netflix without a break. So you, you can't look at that behavior and say, oh, now we live in an era where nobody has an attention span. Right. It's just that we are much more discerning because we b- we're bombarded with um, things that are vying for attention all the time. We've become a lot more discerning. We're we're much better at skimming, and we're much less inclined to say, "Yeah, I'm going to really dig into this." Um, Dan Pink wrote an article about this a while back that I thought was brilliant, um, and he made a distinction between. I think his language is intentional versus interstitial content. So he uses the the example of TV shows where it's like, you know, they're 
know, he has his Netflix app on his phone and like, you know, if he's in line for 10 minutes or whatever, like he can, he can, you know, make a little progress on whatever shows. But then there's a small subset of shows that he watches. These are not phone shows. These are couch shows. And he only watches them when he is at home on the couch with his wife, the popcorns in hand. That is intentional consumption versus interstitial consumption between everything else. And I think a very important distinction is recognizing for a student who is going through an educational experience, which mode are they in and which mode is called for? Because you can alternate back and forth, right? So I listen to podcasts all the time and podcasts are interstitial content for me. I listen to them when I'm like between other things or doing other things. Whereas Watching a video is something that I have to do on my computer. The, the format of a video kind of forces to a certain extent that it be intentional content. And that's fine. But what a lot of educational experiences try to do is they try to make everything intentional. The only way you can consume it is while you're sitting and watching, but that's unnecessary. And so I think there's a, a give and take. We as educators can expect our students to be much more generous in allocating their intentional time if we are more accommodating in not requiring intentional time for things that don't require it. Mm, wow. Well, let's do this. Let's get into these six layers of leveraged learning. Um, you know, can you give us an overview of each one and, and how people can apply them and how people can even look at the way they're educating themselves through the context of this? Sure. So I'll walk through them, but they're um, so there's six components, there's six layers, but the, the more important than understanding any one of them is understanding that there is a hierarchy in terms of the order in which you layer them. If you do it in the wrong order, it tends A, not to work very well, but B, it can also be very um, ineffective and expensive for the education provider. So the very first layer is content, right? That's about figuring out, well, what do I want to teach? And it's very important to start with the end in mind to do, um, you know, it's called backward integrated design um, in, in this context, basically starting with the question of, you know, when all said and done, what do I want these students to remember? What do I want them to feel? What do I want them to be able to do? What do I want them to know? And work your way backwards from that to what do I need to teach? And as you make a list of like, here are the things I need to teach, you also want to think about scaffolding. So we, we talked about this a little bit, but basically we can only tack new ideas onto existing constructs that exist in our mind. And I think the biggest reason why education generally fails is that you're trying to teach something to someone who doesn't have the scaffolding to support it, right? Like, let's say that I... Um, I'm trying to think of an example. Let's say that I'm um, teaching you about different books, right? I'm just trying to teach you about, like, here are some great books to read. And, you know, this one, um, Doug Hofstadter's Godel Escherbach, which is a giant um, masterpiece that is a brick. Um, you know, this one should be the last one that you go through in this little curriculum I've designed because that's that's been my white whale, right? Now, whether or not you understand what that means has nothing to do with how smart you are, has nothing to do with how interested you are with the subject matter. It has everything to do with whether you get the Moby Dick reference or not, which is a function of your exposure. So without that scaffolding, you're just it's not going to make sense to you. And you know, maybe you can infer it from context, especially if you've heard it a few times before. But you want to think through like what is the necessary scaffolding that people need to have before I can teach this concept. So scaffolding can be 
um, just knowledge and information, it, like concepts. Um, scaffolding, I would generalize the concept of scaffolding to say that it's also motivational, understanding how it's relevant to them. Um, it can even be cognitive, right? I think um, this is where we you know, branch back a little bit to, to elementary education. But one of the big beefs that I have with the way traditional elementary and secondary education are done is this assumption that everyone is going to progress at the same speed. Because we know that cognitive development doesn't happen for everyone at the same speed, right? So expecting that every third grader is at a quote-unquote third grade level of, of math, for example, is just silly. Um, there are some really interesting um, like remedial interventions. So basically, you've got kids who are not, whether it's reading or, or doing work at grade level, you know, there's several grade levels behind, then you apply this intervention. Let's say it's to a kid who's you know, in the fifth grade but reading at a second grade level. And you apply this intervention, and boom, he shoots up like two or three grade levels in reading in a few months. And the first thought is like, wow, that's amazing. It's such a great intervention. But the second thought is then, wait a minute, why don't they just do this with all the kids when they're in the second grade and skip two and a half years? And I think the answer is, A, that wouldn't work because a lot of the, the cognitive infrastructure is not there yet. And I think the reason it does work in a lot of cases is, look, they're three years older and the cognitive infrastructure is there. So basically going through this list of what are all the things someone needs to have in order to, to assimilate this new thing that you're trying to give them. So we start with mm -hmm. that content and really work down that path to make sure that we're taking an expansive view of what the content needs to be. Then the second layer, before we even talk about like delivery or the experience or anything, the second layer is um, thinking about the success behaviors that they need. And this goes back a little bit to some of the transitions happening in the world of education. What's happening hand in hand with the shift from just in case to just in time is also a shift from, from um, mandatory to volitional. Right, because if you're, you know, in college for four years, you wrote that check for a hundred thousand dollars, you're committed. And if you know that the class is every Tuesday at four p.m., you know you're likely to be in that class at that time. But now the investments are much smaller. The timing is totally flexible. You can watch it online anytime, which also means you know never has to be today. And that means that. People are not forced to go through it in the way that they used to be with most education. Now, it's very volitional. I have to choose to do it. But if I have to choose to do it, then I could also choose to watch Netflix instead. And so Netflix is really the, the competitor in a lot of ways to educational experiences. It's not the other guy's course or the other place that you could enroll. Because you're not competing just for their dollars or choice. You're competing for their ongoing attention and commitment. And... Yeah. That is very, very hard. That means that because any educational experience is going to be challenging. Nobody ever learned anything worth learning without any challenge or difficulty along the way. But when you combine challenge and difficulty with the fact that I can choose to quit and do something else at any time, you end up with a very low completion rates that we actually see in online courses and MOOCs and so on and so forth. So you need to think about, well, what are the what are the behaviors that I need to equip people with? What are the things that I need to build in um, in order to give them what they need to be able to make it through that whole process? Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because we kind of uh, – we're, we're teaching an online writer's workshop right now. And what we decided to do is we're giving them a content uh, ahead of time and say, watch the lectures at home and then come to the live sessions to discuss what you learn in the lectures. 
Yeah, it's, it's a very effective format. It's, um, it's the flipped classroom idea, which makes a ton mm. of sense because, you know, if, if you're an expert on writing, does it make sense for me to essentially use you as a very high-priced tape recorder or parrot to say the same thing that you said to every class, you know, for the last however many years? Or does it make sense for me to review that on my own time, make sure I get it, and use your expertise to answer questions that only you can answer? Mm-hmm. So it's a great structure. Um, so we start with content, then we layer on the success behaviors, then we figure out the stuff around the delivery and around the user experience. And that's like, you know, is it going to be videos? Is it going to be live? Is it going to be um, a members area? Is it, you know, what are the reminders going to look like? All that kind of stuff. And then the last two layers are um, accountability and support. And accountability is, again, about keeping people focused, keeping them on task, giving them what they need to complete through the program, and finally, the support to answer their questions to help them when they go off track. Now, the reason these two things have to come last is that they're very important, but they're very important as a supplement to an already well-designed educational experience. If you try to use support, meaning you know everybody's going to get a coach to answer their questions to compensate for the fact that the content isn't the right content, then it becomes cost prohibitive. Like You just can't afford you know, as much coaching as it would take to get people on track. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Um, this has been really, really uh, eye-opening, insightful, and thought-provoking. I, you know, as I was going back through the notes, uh, you know, and some of the things we talked about, I thought, wow, okay, this is useful for me to even design my online courses. Uh, so I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? It's a great question. It's a hard question. Um, and of course, I'm trying to think of like, what is a good answer that is not like a trite answer? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's, I, I guess what I would say, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a story to back my way into an answer. Um, I've always been fascinated by Leonardo da Vinci. Um, I don't know where it initially came from because, you know, I was kind of fascinated before I knew anything about him, but, you know, as I started to learn more, you know, it was very justified. And one of the things I've come to appreciate, I have like a bookshelf of books about Leonardo da Vinci in my house. Um, this is a guy who was centuries ahead of his time in, in like a dozen different fields, you know, as an artist, as a cartographer in the field of optics and engineering. And, you know, the list just goes on and on. And what I always found fascinating is that he wasn't a quote-unquote educated man. Um, He was not wealthy or well-to-do. He didn't have a ton of resources. He didn't have access to the equipment or technology that we do now. All he had was an intense curiosity and a sharp mind. Um, You know, when I did my MBA, as, as not particularly valuable as the whole experience was, I did have a couple of really good teachers. And one of them said to me once, I'll never forget this, he said, Danny, you know, I've known a lot of very successful people in my life, and they're all very different from each other. But what they all have in common is that they're all intensely curious people. And I think that intense curiosity is what prompts you to then pursue the paths that lead you down uh, in a direction that makes you unmistakable. Amazing. Uh... Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. This has been really, really eye-opening and insightful. 
so where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, the book and everything else that you're up to? Uh, well, it's absolutely been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, so I'd say for people who are listening, who are interested in the general conversations around education, um, please go to Amazon and order dozens of copies of my book, Leverage Learning. <laughs> um, or you can just go to leveragelearningbook.com and the whole book is there for free. I just want these ideas out there. I think it's too important for it not to be. Um, for people who are specifically interested, you know, they're experts and they want to build courses, the, the last kind of stuff we talked about, um, this is stuff that we help people to do through my business. So if you go to Miracy, M-I-R-A-S-E-E.com, there are a lot of resources for you there. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. 